<coughs> we now pause for snorting. <laughs> yeah, really. <coughs> oh, jeez. This podcast is brought to you by Dristan. <laughs> <laughs> This is the AT Banter Podcast, a balanced and entertaining look at assistive technology, accessibility, and its importance in people's lives. Join Rob Minot, Ryan Flurry, and Steve Barclay as they banter with people around the world about anything and everything regarding assistive technology and the disability community. Now, on with the show. Hey, and welcome to another episode of AT Banter. Banter, banter. Uh, my name is Rob Minot. Joining me today... I'm Mr. Ryan. Dr. Ryan. Well, <laughs> oh, I'm Steve. <laughs> Guys are stepping all over my intro. What is going on? Uh, Ryan Flurry. Hey. And Mr. Steve Barkley. Howdy. <laughs> That's our co-host, Wheezy. <laughs> We are, yeah, I feel like I've, you know, I feel like this is like the, our first episode of the, of the new year, officially. No, we're not there yet. We're still struggling to get there. Know, this year has, <laughs> we've not been on our game this year. We, we've been struggling. We've been hit with snowstorms. <laughs> we've got the plague. I had surgery. Yep. We've had technical issues. It's just been a bit of a. It's been a rough start. It's, it's been, been a, a rough start to the year. Yep. But hey, listen, we're still here. We're soldiering on. Yes, indeedy. Oh, I got a, I got a story to tell you. Go. So when we introduce ourselves, I, I was talking to uh, our, our, our friend Shan uh, out in uh, Saskatchewan, the, uh, the, the loneliest Canucks fan in Saskatchewan. <laughs> and uh, he was saying that when we do our intros, Ryan always says, I'm Ryan. I always say, I'm Steve. And you always say, I'm Rob No. And hmm. he thought for the longest time that your name was Robin O. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> it is now. <laughs> yep. Is that right? Do, am I the only one that does that? Yep. Apparently. Oh no. Well, what's wrong with you guys? I say your last name. You're pretty, you're, he's embarrassed to be on this podcast. <laughs> Well, we are on with a guy named Robin O. I mean, Robin O. <laughs> <laughs> we give our last names when I'm introducing our our guest. I say Robin O. Steve Barkley. That's true. But yeah, see, look at that. Yeah. Well. So there. Hmm. All right. Well, moving on. We'll have to adjust that. I'm going to get these whip these guys into shape. Get them used to calling you Robin O. No, no, that's not what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, that, is, it is. that totally is what's going to happen. <laughs> I hate, I hate you guys. Hey, it's Shan. Blame him. <laughs> uh, what's been uh, What's been going on with you guys? Not much. Shoveling snow, fighting a cold. That's pretty much it for the last week. Yeah, I've just and I've been recovering from surgery. So there you go. It's like a. It is like a geriatric unit in here. There you are, Ryan. Yeah, Rob. Well, what are we doing today? Today we are talking with Jonathan Avila who is the Chief of Accessibility at Level Access. And what are we talking to him about? AR and VR. And what does that stand for? Augmented Reality and Virtual Reality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this will be cool. I really want I really want to have it, get, a, get a VR system. Does it make you nauseous? Like, have you tried it? 
I have a friend that has one. Uh, no, it doesn't make me. I don't. I never get motion sickness no. from anything. I know I have friends that can't even play like first person shooters because they. Oh really? They get. You're like that, aren't you, Steve? Don't you get a little bit of motion sickness? No, no not at all. Not not from that kind of stuff. I mean, if I go out in a boat and it's rolling around out there, I'll get motion sickness. But I've never had it from from a headset type of device. Yeah. yeah. Well, with augmented reality, you won't have that anyway. That's right. You know, I guess augmented reality is a little bit ahead of the curve in, in terms of, uh, you know, market penetration because, you know, Snapchat filters, all that kind of stuff is all considered augmented reality. Yeah. I mean, I mean, even something as simple as Google Maps, right? Yeah, actually, yeah. Essentially. Yeah, yeah, sure. But, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to talk to somebody about how accessibility plays into uh, both VR and AR because, again, you know, nobody... I think everyone thinks of virtual reality as being a very visual medium uh, and that, you know, accessibility, it just has no place in it. But, you know what, Two, 10 years ago, people thought the same thing about uh, video games in general. And here we are, 2019, we have a, you know, an Xbox adaptive controller. Yeah. Uh, almost every game that comes out has some sort of an accessibility control scheme. Um, well, that, that allows people, you know, certainly with physical limitations to, to play video games just as well as anybody else. So by no means is it, uh, is it impossible. Yeah, I think the Xbox, you could also run narrator on as well and have access to some of the menus. So oh, is that right? I was actually thinking I'm going to see if I can reach out and get somebody on to talk about consoles and accessibility. Yeah, that's a, actually, that's a great idea. That would make a really good show too. Well, thank you. You are doing something. See what I can do. The guitar dungeon when we're not here. <laughs> That's right. Trying. The wheels are turning. Yep. Okay, my throat's killing me. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna hack up a lung, so we better get to some news. All right. So gene therapy first to halt most common cause of blindness. Yeah, this is a BBC News article um, talking about a uh, a study being done in the UK uh, with uh, advanced uh, age-related macular degeneration. Um, and they're actually doing, um, uh, injecting a synthetic gene into the back of people's eyes to try and prevent uh, the, uh, uh, the die-off of cells in, in the, uh, in the uh, retina, or in the uh, macula, rather. Um, so there's... Uh, uh, 10 people so far who have had this uh, uh, gene therapy treatment from uh, gyroscopes therapeutics. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the article's kind of sketchy on exactly, you know, what all's going on, uh, but it sounds like it's just the start of this, uh, this trial. But it'll be really interesting to see. Um, this is, uh, I believe, um, the treatment that... Uh, uh, when we had um, person on from Foundation Fighting Blindness, I think this is the one they were talking about where they're actually putting genetic material into the eye which will produce the uh, the drug, uh, the, the protein uh, that, will, that will stop the cells from dying. So it's going to be very, very interesting to see the outcome of this study um, and, uh, and see, you know, if, if it turns into a viable treatment. Well, especially given that macular degeneration, I mean, is it not the most common age-related degenerative eye condition? Yeah, yeah, I believe much? it is, yeah. Well, they said this one is, is applicable to the dry macular degeneration. 
you read down the article, I don't think it applied to the wet. Basically what they're doing here, Steve, if I've got this right, uh, is that they, they take a gene and inject it into the back of the eye? Well, it, it's actually a virus. They're, they're putting a virus into the back of the eye that's carrying a gene and will take that gene into the cells and, and essentially infect your cell with this gene. Um, infect is probably the wrong word, but it, it, it basically um, delivers this, this edited piece of genetic code into your DNA. And from that point forward, cells that have that gene produce the protein required to stop the um, the attacking genes, the, the from attacking genes from destroying, destroying other cells. Wow. wow! Like so, if this if this actually works, uh, this could be this could be major. This could be one of the you know, biggest medical breakthroughs in in many years. Yes, yes, indeed, it could. It could also really screw a CCTV sales. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they said that one of the test subjects was in her eighties or was eighty. So yeah, yeah, our, our prime population. So this will definitely be something to keep an eye on. Um, no pun intended. <laughs> oh, here we go. <laughs> now, from the New York Times, galleries from A to Z sued over websites the blind can't use. On December 13th, a blind Manhattan resident named Henry Tucker filed federal lawsuits against 10 art galleries, saying their websites were not accessible to people who cannot see. The galleries' names included Adam Baumgold, Fine Art, Adelson, Agora, Alberts, Benda, etc., etc. The next day, Mr. Tucker and his attorneys moved on to the bees. So this is basically somebody who's doing blanket lawsuits of of art galleries. Um, With some of the top suing litigators, it sounds like, in the States. If you read down the article, these guys sound like this is what they do. This is how they make their business. One of the interesting things I took out of this article, though, was that they were saying that a lot of the websites or a lot of people go to the ADA because accessibility is supposed to fall under that and, and websites is part of that. But it says the ADA doesn't necessarily specify clearly what website accessibility is supposed to look like, which I found quite interesting. So, you know, these lawsuits, you know, yes, working with the NFB have proven to have some effect in the past but you know i i'd like to actually see what the ada act says about web accessibility does that just mean that you have you know high contrast does that mean it has to be um you know whatever have audio descriptions of your favorite yeah you know i would you know i would think that there's there's a solid foundation of at least an accessibility pass i mean you can tell a website that they've at least tried to make their website accessible. So things like alt tagging mm-hmm. their yeah. images, um, you know, laying out the pages with, you know, with, with headings, et cetera, et cetera. There's all kinds of things that, that um, they can do to at least make it look like they've taken accessibility into account. Can you imagine the alt tagging for art though? <laughs> I mean, I can, well, I've, sure. I've seen a guy stand in front of a blot and and talk about it for half an hour, you know, about the significance of it. I mean, alt tags for for big, paintings could be massive. But this is just Absolutely this massive. is the website, though. Like, yeah. I don't think they're suing the galleries for their internal. No, no, no. You know, this is this is all web related. Right. But yeah. so. But I guess what what stood out to me about this article, though, that that I thought 
would be interesting to revisit the conversation is again these lawsuits because you know it's obvious that what's going on here. I mean, this guy's literally just going through the phone book or whatever, and let's sue art galleries and just starting from A and going to Z. And that's you know what the article sort of points out as you know questionable. And at the end of the article, they sort of leave this question open: is like, is this is this you know a a human rights issue where you know we're we're trying to you know to to bring some of these uh, companies businesses into the you know accessibility fold or is it just a money grab well you read the article here it says you know there's a statement there that says you know a lot of these you know end users that are are suing these websites are getting you know maybe hundreds of dollars after litigation's all said and done the lawyers are walking out with thousands of dollars okay but so money grab for a lot of them sure but i say well i disagree i mean i I mean a lawyer i mean look lawyers are like anybody else they should get paid for the work that they do Mm -hmm. and so sure, yeah, lawyers are making money. Um, the plaintiffs probably aren't making all that much much money, um, but I mean that's that's okay. I mean the the you know the this guy that that brought this suit uh, against these art galleries, for example, he's not doing any any of the the legal work. So it's, it's I think it's fair, you know. Okay, but again, you know, we we go back to you know, and we don't know the answer to this. What is accessibility to you, and what is accessibility to me? This guy says it's not accessible. What wasn't accessible? The article doesn't say. Well, the article yeah, it, doesn't. It, it doesn't. But I mean, there have been enough lawsuits, I think, oh, at this sure. point around accessibility of websites that there's probably a de facto standard that's been built over the sure. years. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there are that. standards out there, and, and I'm sure, you know, within these suits, you know, they they point to some of these standards not not being upheld. Uh, you know, I think that this is exactly what needs to happen for a lot of businesses to take accessibility seriously. And I'm, and I'm sorry. I mean, um, litigation, we've, we've heard over and over again, is mm-hmm. is really the, the main thing that gets businesses' attention. And I'm not disagreeing with that, but I'd like to see the fuller story. Did this guy approach the galleries? Did he it, work with it, them on making things accessible? You know what? There's companies to help it's do that. It's not his job. It's not. Sure it's it is. Not it's in, our job to educate the public. No, it's, it's yes, absolutely it not. No, it's not I our agree. job to... I disagree. It's not our job to... We talk to, about accessible products all the time, and we're out educating people on accessibility. But it's That's not... what we do. It's yeah, not it's, our it's, problem. It's what we do. That's right. It's it's what we do. Mm-hmm. But it's also, but it's not our responsibility to go to businesses and make sure that they're that they're complying with a law, so they don't get sued. That's yeah. that's not our job. When, when was the last time you went to an art gallery website to determine if it was accessible, so that you could contact them and say, "Hey, you know, your website's not accessible." But if you're going to an art gallery, or maybe you're looking at going to an art gallery, and you're doing a little bit of research, and you find that maybe it's not accessible, wouldn't you want to reach out to them and maybe work with them to make it more accessible for everybody? Not if I've got the option of reaching out to my lawyers and getting and a few hundred first. bucks for it. I uh, see. I disagree with that approach. <laughs> yeah, see, but but really, that's the only way to get get businesses their attention. They have to realize that when they're creating these entities in in a public space, they need to be in- inclusive. End of story. Mm-hmm. There are laws that dictate that, and the fact that they're not complying with those laws because well, they didn't know any better. It, too bad. It's 2019. Like, you know, if it was 2002, then maybe. Ignorance of the law is not a defense. We, Correct. We have so many businesses, even here locally, 
that you, you, if you went in and asked them what accessibility was, they couldn't tell you. We yeah. need to educate people. Yeah, by suing them. <laughs> that's not that's the only how answer. they learn. It's not the only answer. Yes, that's how they learn, but that's not the only approach. Well, it's not the only approach, but it's the most effective. And I mean, honestly, it's not like they are doing anything out of, you know, out of school. They are literally taking the law and applying it to businesses. And the fact that those businesses either were ignorant of the fact that they needed to have an accessible website or they didn't care enough, too bad. Then then you're going to get hit with, with one of these. So... I, I'm 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 sort of you seem so, to be in the middle. Yeah, I'm somewhere between the two of you because I, I, one part I want to play devil's advocate because it's fun. Sure. On the on the other hand, uh, you know there 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 are practical ways of going about things, and and this this is pretty heavy handed in my opinion. So I you know I, I think Ryan's right. If he really had a beef with that website, he should have you know contacted them and said, hey, you know your website's not accessible. I'd like to get information. You know, here's a company that you could talk to about website accessibility. And then if they didn't do it, sure, yeah. then, you know, maybe go maybe, to the lawyers. Maybe and maybe he did. Know. I don't know. Well, that's just it. We don't know. Yeah. This article doesn't actually say, but, um, it, it, I like the last line of this article because it, it's, it's just incredibly lazy on the part of the reporter. <laughs> it's like, I don't care. It says, depending on one's perspective, the suits are either salvos for civil rights or a way for lawyers to scrape the internet for a quick paycheck. <laughs> Well, that's great. That's a great conclusion. Mm -hmm. But why didn't you actually look into this a little deeper and, you know, maybe interview the guy and say, hey, you know, what, what did you do beforehand? You know, maybe, you know, talk to one of the businesses and say, hey, did, did you see this coming? You know, this is this is a really great example of just lazy reporting, I think. Yeah. Well, and I think it's going to be really interesting, you know, later this year, if we get this Canadians Disabilities Act through, you know, is that going to lead the way for more litigation in Canada? It very well may. It could. Yeah. It could. Good. So we shall wait and see. Yeah, Ryan. I, I knew I should have went to law school. Ryan will be sitting down here with uh, yellow pages. <laughs> nope. Flipping through. No, I'll be pointing people out to W3C, Web Consortium Guidelines. And, you know, if, like you say, you know, there's there's other approaches first before you're calling the lawyers. Okay, Rob, you and me and a lawyer. Yeah, sounds good. I'm down. I'm ready. <laughs> Uh, me and Steve will be on the yacht. Yeah. They'll still be here in the guitar dungeon. All right. With your... Guitars? Yeah, with your guitars. And you're like, I'm going to teach the world to sing. Hey. Get get out of the bathtub, Rob. It's my turn with the yacht. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. All I'm saying is we preach education all the time, and now you're flipping that and you want to litigate. So... <laughs> No, I'm, I'm That's saying, exactly I'm saying, what you just said. Well, I think, I think we've said on, on previous shows, the most important things are advocacy, yes. uh, that there be laws in place, and yes. that people apply them. Yes. Yeah. I mean, sure. I mean, educate, don't get me wrong. Like, I'm not saying that, you know, education isn't important. Certainly, of course, it's important, and, and of course, it's what we do. But, um, you know, there are businesses out there that just don't, Absolutely. don't take the interest yeah. in, in making accessibility a thing, because yeah. they either... You know, the, the demographics aren't there for them. You know, the, a company, it's frustrating when you think of it in terms of, you know, a company will plug money into, you know, search engine optimization, mm -hmm. in quotes, mm -hmm. for their website or Facebook advertising for their website or right. any sort of digital marketing aspect. They'll, they'll, you know, soak all kinds of money into that. But the idea of, oh, you know what, I might have to redevelop the, the mm -hmm. site a little bit and pay a developer, you know, a thousand bucks to make my website accessible. 
Well, all of a sudden it's like, ooh, well, that's not a lucrative ooh. investment for them. And that's just got to change. Yeah, for sure. Boom. I win. <laughs> I win. Ryan said, for sure. <laughs> Let's stop there. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. I got the original. I can edit that out. <laughs> hey, Steve, why don't you tell the fine folks about Canadian Assistive Technology? Well, Canadian Assistive Technology is a Canadian-based distributor of, guess what, assistive technology. I would not have guessed that. Uh, really? Oh, i got to work something better into the name then. <laughs> um, and uh, we do uh, all kinds of low vision and blindness aids, as well as all kinds of physical access aids and uh, accessible furniture, you name it. Visit our website at www.canastech.com. Rick, let me ask you about this. Chaos Technical Services. Chaos Technical Services. Don't sound so excited about it. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Speaking of repairs. We are the sister company to Canas Tech. Um, we do the repairs on uh, low vision devices, uh, uh, reading machines uh, for libraries, braille printers, and pretty well anything in between. We can be found at uh, www.chaostechnicalservices.com. Joining us now is Jonathan Avila, who is the Chief Accessibility Officer for Level Access. So, Jonathan, in the room with me is co-host Rob Minot. I thought I was the host. I thought I was the host with the most. <laughs> Not no, today. Just the, just the co-host today. Screw you, Ryan. Uh, hi, hello. <laughs> hello. And we have Steve Barclay. I, I don't have any title. <laughs> And I'm Ryan, so we want to thank you for joining us today. Great. Thank you. Happy to be here. Let's start with telling us a little bit about uh, the company and what you guys do there. Sure. So I'm the Chief Accessibility Officer with a company called Level Access. And Level Access is formerly called SSB Bark Group, which you may have, may have heard of. Uh, our mission is to um, empower people with disabilities to um, access all sorts of uh, the digital world. And uh, so we help organizations, uh, businesses make their um, products and services accessible. So it's sort of the, the whole thing we do. Um, I'm involved with the uh, W3C. I'm on the Accessibility Guidelines Working Group to, um, to help make future standards for accessibility. I've been in the industry for about, um, about 20 years. Um, so I've sort of come from uh, before... Uh, when accessibility was sort of an afterthought to now helping organizations build accessibility into their products from the beginning. Which is exactly where it needs to be. (laughs) Bingo. Okay, well, let's step a little bit into VR. Now, how long have you been sort of seriously looking at VR in terms of accessibility? Sure. So it's it's been several years. Um, Started originally with some... uh, federal government uh, agencies looking at uh, AR and VR as, as possibilities for training, uh, that type of thing, emergency situation responses and that type of thing. And uh, of course, um, you know, we had a lot of initial pushback, people saying, you know, it's a very visual medium. This is, um, <clears throat> you know, won't work for people who are blind, uh, that type of thing. Um, and of course, I see that as incorrect because all of the things that the system knows about um, the players and the environment and those details uh, certainly can be communicated 
in different ways for people with different types of disabilities. So I'm looking at different modalities of communicating that same information. But essentially, that information is known and is available. And actually, AR and VR can not only be accessible, but could also be an assistive technology to help people. Um, more recently, we have been working with organizations in the uh, CVA space in the, in the U.S. And the CVA is the uh, 21st Century uh, Communication and Video Accessibility Act. And it requires that any type of communication, whether it be uh, you know, two-way communication between humans, whether voice or uh, text or real-time uh, communication, uh, et cetera, be accessible and accessible across the board. People who blind, uh, deaf or hard of hearing, cognitive learning disabilities, motor impairments, et cetera. So organizations uh, in particular who make games and other types of uh, things that fall on the spectrum of immersive um, uh, technologies uh, reach out to us and we've worked with them to initially make those uh, communication features accessible or to explore the opportunities of making those features accessible. And so like everything, uh, gaming and other types of technology, there's really that social interaction aspect between humans and, and AR and VR is no different. Um, when it comes to including those capabilities. So that's sort of where we're starting. Uh, and I you know, hope that um, as we conquer some of those initial challenges to make progress, that we'll then be able to extend the accessibility uh, beyond those communication features. Now, I mean, and AR and VR are both fairly new technologies in, you know, in, in terms of, you know, the, in terms of the entire scope of things. It, is is that a bit of a challenge too? Because it's really still an evolving it's it's still an evolving market. Or is that maybe is. actually an improvement? Is, is it is it better that you're you're working at this from the ground floor? So it, right, yeah, so so essentially, it's an opportunity, uh, but also it's at the same time a challenge, right? Um, so when the iPhone came out, uh, it was two years uh, until it had um, screen reader built in. Um, so there are you know, there's the benefit so that the people who are working in these are sort of very open to this idea and the areas um, that it could provide beneficial uh, things in healthcare and education and other types of, of things. They, you know, they see the benefit uh, from an accessibility standpoint. At the same time, there, you know, there's a competitive edge to get into the market to release something by a certain date. And so there's also those challenges with accessibility can um, could make them come into the, at a later date. Uh, could you know be additional um, time spent on that? Um, so there you know those those are obstacles that we have to sort of overcome. Um, and I think we've you know we've sort of made progress where we help we help people sort of prioritize some of the issues. Um, so this is a great opportunity if you're building an API, which is an applications and uh, programming interface to communicate and you're looking at your product and you're thinking, oh, well, all these things that can control my product and how it can be used. This is an opportunity for us to sort of look at those different ways that a person can interact with it, whether it be speech or um, whether it be with a mobile a phone companion or whether it be with a physical controller um, or eye gaze or head of movement and then how the user can uh, receive information back 
So this is a great opportunity. And so what we find is that some of these technologies are actually already doing some really great things because they're supporting different types of interactions, which is a very positive thing. And so we can document that. And this is a great time for us and to get into and say, hey, as you're building this API, this is something you should be thinking about. You should be thinking about things like um, the screen reader user needing to get um, uh, text-to-speech uh, and, and be able to uh, navigate through the different elements on the screen. You should be thinking about the low vision user um, being able to enlarge things beyond just stepping closer to something, which would enlarge the items. You know that that level of magnification is not going to be enough for most users with low vision. So this is an opportunity to think about building those components into the system um, at an earlier stage. Well, it's interesting too because you know we we deal with a or, or you know we're pretty familiar with a with a product uh, called Iris Vision. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it at all, but it actually uses a VR headset um, and utilizes that platform to provide uh, a, a low vision aid for people f to be able to do the very thing that you're talking about, like you know to, to have on the fly magnification. So I mean, there's there's all kinds of, of accessibility applications that that not only VR itself can utilize, but the VR platforms as well. So potentially, you could have an Iris Vision virtual reality version, where you step into your virtual reality and then you put on your virtual reality headset in virtual reality and then magnify what you're looking at. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, I mean, it is potential. Like you could. With the you know example with with ARs, you could put up a TV you know, anywhere you want, so it could be at a preferred you know height or angle for you, or you could make it bigger and smaller, right? So there's you know lots of potential, and some of these um, devices even can project directly onto your retina, right? So if you have issues or challenges with the front part of your eye, they can sort of bypass those challenges and, and put the image directly onto your retina. Wow. So when you're looking at the whole spectrum of, of technology, um, it, it could certainly be very, very useful. Um, you know, there's a lot of different technology out there, um, such as Ira as well, sure. which I think will be um, combining uh, AR and also uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence um, to, to solve some of these challenges. So I'm just thinking, through, you know, for examples, your low vision example might be um, highlighting a path uh, uh, to, to an entrance, a door or something like that. I mean, some of the challenges that the folks have is sometimes is finding an address is one thing, but locating a specific entrance, whether it be at an amusement park to find the actual entrance for the ride or to find a door, um, those things could guide the user to those um, locations visually, uh, as well as with other um, audio or um, you know tactile cues. So is is that what really gets you excited? The fact that this technology is is almost so new that we haven't even thought of all the different applications that we could be using it for. Oh, absolutely right. So to me, it's exciting because it's that assistance with wayfinding you could practice a route without having to go out into the environment to practice that route um there was an example uh you know some folks had used a um a white cane with a, a motor on it to vibrate and so the user could you know si simulate going out in the environment and as they encountered obstacles it would vibrate the white cane and obviously there's some challenges with you know with that 
you know, being quite realistic, but it gives you the idea of how you could actually navigate through the tools that you're used to using through an environment and gain the, you know, the practice for safely navigating, wayfinding, exploring areas virtually before you explore those areas. But it's sort of beyond that because there may be areas that you can't get to for certain challenges, um, certain things that maybe you can't explore by touch because those things are too fragile. And so having a simulated environment where you could explore those senses and feel, uh, feel those items and experience the different uh, perceptions, uh, whatever it might be, you know, we're, we're talking about touch, but there's smell and there's proprioception and there's um, uh, temperature and uh, taste and all sorts of other senses out there that eventually will be more mainstream in these technologies. And so it allows people to experience places that they might not normally other, you know, otherwise be able to um, experience. So I think that's, you know, that's a huge aspect. And what also I think is very exciting is that people with disabilities can really go into these um, virtual worlds and their disability is not, you know, not apparent. They can choose to identify if they want to as having a disability, but they don't, they don't have to. So they can be, you know, integrated into an inclusive, um, you know, virtual, uh, or, you know, world and um, don't have to be treated differently because they have a disability. Right. And that kind of takes us into the <clears throat> sort of the gaming and and the, and the social interactions that can come with with gaming. Yes, absolutely. I mean, so when you um, look at gaming, it is so very social today. If you look at uh, young people coming into games, they expect a social interaction. And I've you know read plenty of uh, gaming forums where people say they won't even buy a game that doesn't have a so social aspect to that game. Yeah. So this is a very, very big part of uh, a thing. And it's not even just young people. I think the average age of a gamer is like 35 years old. Um, there's people who have all ages and abilities playing games. And it really connects people. Uh, people uh, need that uh, entertainment and that social relationship to, um, to de-stress and unwind and uh, and that type of thing. So I think um, I definitely see this communication aspect being very, very big. And so, you know, we're seeing, you know, initially we had meant had avatars in the online world. Right. And now we're using AR and VR to sort of take those avatars and animate them and emote them into your character, you know, how you want to be seen with other people and communicating your body actions, you know, through the, the virtual world to other people. Um, so it's, um, it's, it, it's, uh, there's a lot of potential out there, um, for how things go. And we just need to make sure that those different aspects can be communicated in different ways. Uh, for example, if there's visual type of communication, body language, um, you know, that, that information can be communicated to people who, who can't see that, uh, or if, um, someone who, uh, is deaf or hard of hearing is not able to, um, to speak that they can be able to type and that could be translated into their voice that represents them uh, to communicate with other people. How big of a challenge is it to really make these spaces accessible? That's, that's sort of a complex question. Uh, it depends on the, the type of technology that's being used. It depends on um, some of the frameworks being in place, right? So initially okay. um, we don't have a lot of those frameworks in place that, 
um, contain. So just beyond like the social aspects, in order to get to that aspect, right, of, of communicating or playing a game, you actually have to be able to put on the headset. You have to be able to configure it to you. You have to be able to set it up and create an account and log in and do all these other things that are required. And so that process is something we have to sort of work with first. And then as I mentioned before with this, this API, we sort of have to make sure that, okay, well, great. It's, it's useful that you can use voice chat and maybe that's accessible to someone who's blind, but how are they going to activate that voice chat? And how do you get from step A to B in that system? Well, you need to have that internal structure that would allow, um, because these platforms generally aren't using something where you could use a typical screen reader like you might expect for Windows or VoiceOver on the Mac to just pull that into this environment. These environments are often very, you know, different. And so you would have to build that capability in first to support uh, that type of navigation, to support that type of speech or other type of feedback um, braille or whatever it might be. And so when you build in those capabilities, um, then you can start building on top of that. And a lot of these platforms that are coming out, they're not only a game or a product, but they are a platform that other games and products and apps will be built on top of. So making sure that we get accessibility into these platforms right. is really key and that's been a similar challenge that we've had with the gaming environment. You have different uh, engines like Unity or Unreal that are used for the gaming, making sure that we get accessibility into those engines and into those frameworks so that other apps can then take advantage of them. Um, sort of in the gaming world, uh, you know, the Xbox is a great example of something where Microsoft built a lot of accessibility in. They built some of these back-end services that then when apps can then take advantage of those services to, um, to make uh, things more accessible by either text-to-speech or translating uh, speech to text and, and, and so forth. It's very much an, an evolving field right now. I mean, the, we, have, we have several different VR platforms that really, I, I don't know. I don't know if any of them have really penetrated the market to the degree that that the developers have hoped. I mean, we've got the we've got the Vive, we've got the Oculus Rift. Is Ooh. that correct? Yeah. Um, we've got the the PlayStation. The um, VR. VR. Uh, I can't think of any others, but I'm sure there are. I mean, there's there's of course the the lower value ones, right? The ones that just use a smartphone. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but I mean, there's, so, but there's all these, these varied platforms that are still kind of, you know, tr shuffling to try to really have market dominance. Is, is that a bit of a challenge right now? Because you just sort of don't know where to, where to put, put, um, all your energies into. Certainly is a challenge convincing, convincing all of them that they need to invest in accessibility yeah. and that the investment will be worthwhile and, you know, is necessary. And that's where I think with the communication thing in the U.S., you know, with CBA, there's potential fines for the communication right. features not being accessible. So there's a really, uh, from a legal standpoint, there's, a, there's an interest in making those parts accessible. And so that regulatory aspect has been helpful. Um, you know, unfortunately, in the accessibility space, it almost takes regulation or sometimes litigation. Yep. 
in order to drive the industry forward. So we haven't seen as much progress in other areas um, before that. So uh, yeah, it's, it's it's certainly a challenge. The mobile, you know, the mobile device challenges, as you mentioned, those devices uh, as they are are backed out, you know, with the VR, um, mm-hmm. and so putting an assistive technology on top of that. You know, could could affect performance, right? So, so there are real challenges that have to be solved, especially in some of these uh, lower end ones. Um, and I don't have all the answers, but I think you know, the first step is awareness, right? Just yeah. communicating to these different groups the awareness for this. And there's different approaches, um, like some of the groups, like Able Gamers, they really take the approach that um, it's not so much we don't want to threaten litigation or regulation. We want to work with you to make things accessible for people with disabilities and, you know, have users provide feedback and communicate in a very, a very, you know, structured way to, um, to get these, these things built into the products. And I think it will take, um, it will take time. Um, if we see a major player coming out with something that is accessible, I think that may help to drive the others in the industry. So it's been my experience that right. when one one organization does something well, the others will will look at that and try to emulate that and follow that. And so, yeah. um, I think if we get that one thing happening, that'll make progress for everybody. You know, Microsoft has demoed some of the virtual reality things that had accessibility. For example, at the CSUN Assistive Technology Conference, they had an like an audio game where you travel through. Uh, a 3D world and you would use uh, spatial audio, a 3D audio to sort of navigate and get information. Um, and so they were able to demonstrate that type of uh, thing um, with the um, Microsoft Mixed Reality, which is, you know, formerly HoloLens. Um, and, and it was neat to see those types of things. But, you know, at this point, it seemed like a lot of those, those games are more at their research stage. They are not necessarily at the... Uh, formal stage um that that we would hope that's sorry rob i was just gonna jump in for a sec go for it one of the questions i have is you know when you hear the term accessibility your mileage may vary from company to company so when it comes to ar and vr are there actually guidelines you know specified that companies need to follow well so um there isn't specific, for accessibility. There isn't specifically ones, right? But I mentioned back to the CVA. There's a the, what are functional performance objectives. So they basically say a, a person with this type of you know who is blind or low vision or a person with uh, color perception challenges. They have to everything has to be operable or the same information has to be available. Now beyond those functional guidelines. Uh, there are guidelines for games that are sort of voluntary that people have been putting out there. So uh, there's the International Gamers uh, Development, uh, IGDA. They have a set of game uh, development uh, guidelines or checklists. There's a game accessibility. So there are some folks who have done similar things for games. Now, you, you would sort of have to take and extend that to the VR, AR world. Um, we also, of course, have the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, which many people think are just for web, but they really can be applied. A lot of the principles can be applied beyond web content, beyond software to these worlds. I think really what we're talking about though is we need to have this planning phase. We're actually 
architecting a screen reader and assistive technology features from the ground up. So we're looking at things like at the platform level, we need high, you know, increased contrast. We need text-to-speech. We need uh, some sort of navigation, be able to navigate through items and, and be able to say what order things are in, right? right? So if you think about the same types of challenges that Apple had when they introduced accessibility onto the Mac OS or mm-hmm. that Windows had when they introduced accessibility onto the Windows platform, <laughs> those are some of the same, same types of challenges that you know, you'd be incorporating. Um, now, of course, we can build off of those earlier experiences, um, to you know, so it would definitely be faster at this point to do that. I think the one example to look back to is, you know, the advent of the smartphones. When right. when when Apple first you know came out with the iPhone, you know, you looked at it and went, it, it wasn't intuitive at all. It, it was like this is not going to be an accessible device. Um, but they went ahead; they cracked the code on how to make that <laughs> device accessible. And everybody else followed suit. And now, right, you know, exactly. you, you, buy a, you buy a smartphone and out of the box, it's probably one of the most accessible devices yeah. out of the box that you can possibly purchase. Um, so in a way, you know, you transfer that to the idea of VR and really all you really need is that, that one VR platform to sort of take the lead and again, you know, emphasize the importance of, of having it accessible out of the box and everybody else is going to follow suit. Right. And there's certainly, I think what was nice about the mobile environment is that it was in some sense, people started over with the user interface, right? They took a simplified user interface that had less items on it, was more straightforward. And so, you know, many people prefer to use their app or their device because of, because of that. Um, It's just easier to get what you need. It's more contextual. And I think that, that AR and VR could, could certainly be that as well. If you think about all the contextual uses of this technology for people, people with uh, cognitive learning disabilities as they're performing a job, you know, getting that contextual help of like, here's the next step. Here's where, here's, you know, where you, you know, you know, push this button or take this to this location, that just in time information and sort of like a heads up uh, display type of thing will be very beneficial um, to, to that group of people. And I think it's important, like when we think about disabilities, a lot of people have multiple disabilities. So you, you know, you may have be blind or visually impaired, but have a, an additional disability as well. So, um, you know, we got, we should really be thinking about that type of situation and how people access things. Um, I also think we have the combination of technologies now. So if you look at the Internet of Things, a lot of these things can also are generally controlled by your smartphone. So it may be that even if you have a dedicated AR VR system, you may be able to input information from your smartphone, which is already accessible, into that AR VR system. Yep. Yeah, in fact, I, I I would assume that that's just going to be a certainty in the future. I mean, that's just the way that the way that things are headed. I think. <clears throat> now, is it is it a little bit frustrating when you talk to people? Because I I feel like whenever I talk to people about VR and AR, people automatically just assume that it's just it's gaming. That's that's really the only. Um, component of of either VR AR because mainly that's you know that that's just been the historical usages of it mainly 
you know, is, is it a little bit frustrating? Because there are so many more potentials. I mean, I've heard of people, I've heard of them using uh, VR for Alzheimer's patients to help with, with uh, dementia, um, medical imaging, medical diagnoses. Um, like you said, you know, the idea of, of, of virtual mobility and orientation. There's so many applications for this, yet people just seem to go straight to that's ah, just for that's just for video game nerds. I think it depends who you talk to, right? So the the people who maybe only seen the the video game aspects, or that's been their experience, that's where they're coming from. But if you talk to the people who really are in this space, I think they'll they're going to see the other potential. They're going to see healthcare um, that these these devices are going to be used by surgeons to um, you know augment the surgery or to practice the surgery beforehand. Um, they're going to be using this type of technology in the military. Uh, they're going to be using it in education and classrooms. Um, so I think the, the folks I've been you know, in the industry, I think, are, are seeing the potential beyond gaming. Um, and so I think that's going to be a big area. And that's, that's also good for accessibility, though, right? Because most educational institutions have some accessibility requirements. Um, healthcare, uh, certainly if it has federal funding involved in the U.S., uh, is, is tied to um, some accessibility requirements as well. So I think that may, uh, may help. I mean, there's all sorts of um, apps that we're seeing these days, like to help people take their medication in sort of an augmented reality one to, to sort of make sure yeah. they're putting the medication in their mouth in the correct way and taking the correct dosage. And so um, we're going to see more and more in the, uh, the healthcare space. So, and, and I don't know if this is going to be a, a question that you're, you're going to be able to answer because it might be a little bit too much in the development technical side of it. But just as an opinion, as, as somebody who works really closely in this, in this space, what's preventing VR and AR from really becoming ubiquitous and just sort of everywhere like smartphones are? Is it just that the technology isn't quite there yet to really have this one platform that, that just penetrates the mainstream market? Or, or is it just that you know the, the just the developers haven't developed that one magic operating system that's going to draw everybody to it? So I've seen it sort of as sort of like a phased approach, right? So if the first was sort of like the gaming, and there was some you know advanced uses in, in medicine and in military, but um, where we started seeing it come in next is with a, a, you know AR and mobile phones. Um, where you could drop things into an environment to make videos or for gaming like Pokemon Go or uh, even for communication uh, with, with your friends. Um, and people have mobile devices. It's not an extra thing. So AR in that environment was probably you know, the first phase. Right. Um, and I think there's certainly challenges with performance. Um, there's challenges with cost. I mean, if you look at all the things that have come out from Google Glass to... There was a, a big manufacturer who had, you know, a sort of a heads-up display glasses, and they, you know, canceled the program on that. Um, and I think it was about the, they didn't think the market was there to to sell it, uh, and so this type of solution would would like pop up contact information, you know, uh, calendars would tell you where the nearest coffee shop was in your in your glasses, and I think there's I think that's where things are moving. But they, you know, the impression I got was from from the standpoint of return on investment, it wasn't there for them. 
and so I think there's that barrier that that organizations are trying to break, and I think they're close to breaking that. And once they get to that point, uh, these things will be very ubiquitous in our society. And I think this is the way things are going. It's just been a little bit slower than a lot of us had hoped. There's been challenges with um, the field of view being wide enough with some, some of the technology because the processing power uh, and the battery life and all those challenges. So it's, it is it does take a lot of money and research to overcome some of these challenges. There's also been challenges with some of the VR making people feel nauseous uh, and those types of things. So they all have to be you know, figured out and addressed. So Jonathan, do you know of any apps or samples of accessible AR, VR that people can actually take a look at? A lot of the folks we're working with, we're not at the stage where it's you know publicly available. Mm-hmm. Like sure. we're doing a lot of the behind the scenes type of work. And the same thing in gaming, right? I mean, we're sort of really making that shift to accessible gaming and and we see people making some progress. There's, there's examples of, of some things that are, people are doing well. You know, you can point to the, hey, this one aspect is really good here, but then another aspect isn't as good. But then there's other product here that has some progress as well. And I would just say the the products that tend to allow for multiple modes of input and output um, are the best, right? I mean, simply relying off of eye tracking or relying off of, you know, even the ability to, to have two eyes, um, you know, apps need to be able to support different methods of interaction, whether it be moving your head, um, using a controller, using a mobile phone, connecting a physical keyboard, um, you know, uh, gestures, you know, performing gestures in the air, right? I mean, there's lots of different ways to interact. So I really see that the folks who are supporting multiple methods of interaction, <clears throat> multiple methods of receiving information, uh, both auditorially, visually, and through other, um, other methods are the ones that are going to be most successful. Well, yeah, you know, it's interesting. And we talked about this a few weeks ago when we were talking about, uh, I think, the latest CES show. Um, you know, the, the HTC Vive uh, was showcasing their, their newest model that had eye tracking built into the device. And we were talking about that, saying that, you know, it's, it's kind of amazing because eye tracking is, you know, ha, you know it has been a, a staple of assistive technology for, for years and years. And here they are. They have it. They have it built into this new model. Mainstream device. Yeah, yeah. A, a mainstream device, um, which could have far-reaching um, accessibility um, implications for a for a device that's built off the HTC Vive. Do you find that? Do you find that some of these developers are just including things that you know are, have have amazing potential that they don't even realize? Oh, absolutely. We we see this with AR, VR, and gaming that developers have introduced a lot of features um, and these features turn out to be really good, right? So um, if you have a controller, you know, making sure that, you know, you can remap buttons on the controller. And I know that sort of applies to games, but it applies to VR as well, right? Um, Supporting different methods of access, like, oh, well, we support Bluetooth and you can connect to keyboard. So, in theory, you could, you know, control it through the keyboard. Um, so having some of these built-in uh, technologies or they had built-in Bluetooth capabilities for, you know, supporting integration with a phone or uh, whatever it might be, uh, SMS or any sort of technology like that. You know, those capabilities, um, 
you know, potentially are, are very important. So we, we see, you know, game manufacturers all the time building in these things and not realizing <laughs> how, how really helpful they are to people um, with disabilities. So, and this, again, this, you may be unprepared to do this, but can you just give us a, a taste of some of the different things that you see AR and VR being able to do for say somebody who's blind or visually uh, impaired. Like one of the things that comes to springs to my mind is say facial recognition, for example, mm-hmm. um, you know, for somebody who's blind or visually impaired, if there's, if there's facial recognition software built into say something like a, a you know, glasses, smart glasses um, that can identify people and tell you who's, who's in front of you. What other kinds of things? Bill is in front of you. You owe Bill (laughs) $40,000. Turn and run. (laughs) Well, I think for, you know, it's beyond people who are blind and visually impaired, but for people with autism, that uh, a recognition of emotion in other people. So so these these things, when combined with the machine learning and, you know, the Watson type uh, technology, um, I think really, if you look at something that the, some of the things that Ira does, for example, that right now they're using humans to do, right. uh, to, you know, those will be taken into, uh, machines will be doing those right. in the future and there'll be additional feedback that'll make it more of an AR experience, um, where they're going to sort of take your current reality and lay in, uh, the, you know, the augmentative reality on top of it. Um, and, and so those clues will sort of be part of part of what you're getting. Um, so I, I, I see all sorts of things from travel to, um, you know, preparing people for, um, you know, any, any sort of daily activities, whether it be cooking um, or uh, enhancing the experience. Facial recognition is certainly um, a good one. You know, a travel challenges are, uh, you know, bound with um, uh, hazards that come up temporarily, right? So, right. you know, you might be able to build into some instructions, uh, you know, like you would have with Google Maps. You can build in walking instructions, right? But there's construction. There's piles of snow, Right. There's all sorts of things that come up as you're uh, in your daily life and being able to have something that could identify them, sort of overlay some sort of uh, alternative route uh, to you and provide you those instructions. Um, you know, I think is a real thing for, for people with low vision. We started to go down that route of certainly um, augmented. You know, you've probably seen some of this technologies where. Uh, if you have uh, macular degeneration, you have a scotoma where there's no vision in one part. They're actually taking the what you might see in that area and displaying it in another part of your vision to sort of stitch together the whole world in your usable vision wow. that you might not or otherwise n- normally be able to see. Hmm. Yeah, and I would think that the education space uh, would be a, a huge one as well. Um, which which makes you know the idea of building in an accessible uh, UI and platform to be even that much more important. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, any anything from accessibility or, or education space, whether it be science or biology, for right. students to uh, experience um, the different uh, things. I even had someone approach me about uh, the the three D maker movement and how that 
you know, has been less accessible for people with disabilities, in particular people who are blind or visually impaired, to experience that. And how could you, you know, how could you take a 3D object and communicate that, um, you know, audibly or through tactile means that um, could help the user experience that and be able to make their own things, um, you know, with uh, 3D technology. No, you know, I, I mean, just my personal opinion is just looking at these um, shows like CES and, and, and things is just making sure that we just keep people aware of accessibility right. and the inclusiveness of why we're doing it right. And just, I think we've got to overcome, like some people don't, don't realize there's a problem. Right. They don't realize that someone's being left out right. and they would be willing to, you know, build this technology. And some folks don't understand the challenges. And so when when they see the you know, when they think about the, you know, someone who's blind using this product, they go, oh, this can't be done. But we start sometimes with the smaller pieces when we're dealing with accessibility. So yeah. Let's just start with color and contrast and think about things that people may be more familiar with, like contrast or someone who's colorblind. And we start, you know, okay, then we move to something else and we start building in accessibility layer by layer. And so they're introducing it slowly. And then, then you get them thinking and then they get excited about, you know, some of these things that are, you know, maybe a little bit more, um, more work to solve. Um, but we've, we sort of make progress by that. You know, that way we're... There, people tend to be in a little bit, um, you know, put off at first, you know, just like anything like accessibility of comic books or any other sort of medium that seems really difficult for to, to make fully accessible for everybody. If you start in smaller pieces, um, then then you know, eventually you can show them the whole the whole picture. And do you feel like that conversation is a lot easier to start these days? Yes, absolutely. I mean, just um, in, in, in the space that we're in, like even five years ago, we wouldn't have had, um, you know, retailers and hospitality and travel and all these other people who are now very interested in accessibility mm -hmm. um, for in general. We wouldn't have them uh, five years ago. I mean, it, you know, initially when we started, it was it was the government who was concerned about accessibility, and that was really driving. And there were some in the education space, but they didn't have a lot of money. Um, and now, like all sorts of organizations, are really interested in accessibility because of litigation or because it's the right thing to do, right. um, that type of thing. And the you know the one area that we didn't really we kind of skipped with AR and VR was retail. Uh, there's definitely going to be um, sort of the synergist between, you know, AR, you're going into a store and you're going to be sort of maybe directed or your experience is going to be enhanced by using a technology. And I, I think retail will be a big area. And because that industry has been very susceptible to litigation, that could be another area that we see, um, you know, progress with AR. Yeah. I mean, uh, you, and again, to bring it back to gaming, uh, you know, look at, um, the, um, the Xbox and their, the adaptive controller, you know, 10 years ago, those things existed, but they're usually some guy had built one, a Franken controller in his garage that, that was sort of adaptive, but you know, Microsoft to their credit, they went out and they, they developed one and it got, you know, a hugely positive reception. Yes, absolutely. And I think you see, a change at Microsoft because of 
uh, Nadella and he has a child with a disability. And so that you know, we see that a lot in organizations where they have person experiences disability firsthand. And suddenly there's a change of culture and commitment within an organization to sort of look at this. And so they have, you know, you know, funded the adaptive controller and work with the able gamers. And, um, you know, it's a great piece of technology that's now mainstream. And in that sense, you can connect it to your Windows 10 machine. It's not just on the Xbox. And I've even heard of people connecting it to the Nintendo Switch and all sorts of things, right? So, um, you know, the possibilities, um, are really endless when organizations sort of embrace that approach and take that inclusive um, stance. So I've, it's been uh, really great to see the progress that's been made, um, you know, by Microsoft and, and and the Xbox platform. Jonathan, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Um, for anybody who's interested in what you guys do over there at uh, Level Access, um, where can people find you? Levelaccess.com is uh, is a website and. Um, we uh, we pretty much do anything digital accessibility related. So any um, services, um, auditing, consultation, uh, strategic uh, policy, uh, working with organizations to sort of embed accessibility in. And we, we really strive to help, uh, you know, the wireframe, the design level, design systems, all the way through the, you know, continuous testing uh, integration by developers through the lifecycle of a product. Uh, not just, you know, not thinking about accessibility at the end of the QA phase, that's way too late. Um, and so we, we do a lot of that. We also uh, make tools to help organizations manage uh, accessibility. So we have a platform that manages, um, helps organizations at an enterprise level track accessibility of all their assets, whether they be web or mobile apps. We also make testing tools. So we sort of have the whole gamut of digital accessibility. All right, sir. Thanks okay, so thank much. Thank you so much. All right, take thank care. You. Have a good day. Bye. I love VR. I, I really, I wish they would figure this technology out because I really want, I just want a VR helmet. Well, it's going to be interesting because at Mobile World Congress, I think coming up soon or, or build one of the two conferences, Microsoft's releasing the new HoloLens, the HoloLens 2. And so it's going to be interesting to see what features it incorporates because they are also working on like with the first HoloLens, you had an external controller you used to interact with objects. Right. They're working on being able to just interact with objects using your hands, yeah. not having to use a controller. That would be really cool. So we'll see what comes. But I'm excited. I just want to try some of this AR stuff. I think part of the part of the problem with it with the technology is well, it's a bit of a double-edged sword because I, I've, it's still very expensive. Mm-hmm. To buy to buy a VR system is still you're still looking at I think the probably the cheapest one out there is the one that you just attach to a, a PlayStation and I think that that's still like between three and four hundred dollars. Um, the other you know like the the Vive, um, the Oculus. I mean you you need not only do you need the the headsets itself but you also need a really good computer to run it properly. So it's expensive. I mean, you're talking, you know, you know, north of, you know, twelve, thirteen hundred bucks. Um, and that's just, <clears throat> you know, for a lot of people that that's it, it's too expensive for a gimmick, which is what you know, to be honest, what a lot of people still see virtual reality as. And as a True. result of that, because the the numbers aren't there, of course, there's not as many people developing apps or games for those platforms. So there's nothing really to draw the people in. So it's, you know, it's a bit of a catch 22. So 
I think that I think what really needs to just happen is that the technology needs to get to the point where they can bring the price point down, where it's just like, oh, you know what? I, yeah, I'll spend a, I'll spend three hundred bucks on this. Well, it's it's roughly analogous to console gaming when console games were first coming out, right? Yeah, like nothing was really that popular until somebody came out with a console that had a lot of different software for it. Right. Yes. Um, and that's what it's going to take. It's going to take somebody to come up with a headset that's got a ton of software. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's you know, still very, very much a, a new market, but uh, somebody will crack the code eventually. Hey, Ryan. Yes, sir. Uh, well, that was really low key. Yes, <laughs> Try that again. Hey, Eeyore. Yeah, really. Eeyore. Hello, poo. Try it again with feeling. Hey, right. Ryan. Rob. That's way better. All right. Where can people find us? ATBanter.com. They can also drop us a line at cowbell at ATBanter.com. Woohoo. Woohoo. I won. You did. Yay, Wait, let's it. do that again with, with, the, with the cowbell. They can also drop us a line at cowbell at ATBanter.com. Damn, that was see that was worth the two days that it took. <laughs> two days, it was like three or four <laughs> to get Code Eddie to get that damn thing working. Uh, where, where, well, what else? Where else, guys? Facebook. You, well, you guys are Twitter? out of practice. <laughs> I'm tired. I've got a cold. <laughs> I've got things I need to do. They can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Yay. They can also find us at their nearest walk-in clinic. <laughs> <laughs> sure, right? <laughs> okay, well, we're old and tired. <laughs> Sick and tired. Wow. Sick and tired. Geriatric old. unit in here. It really is. We'll get into that. All right, everybody. Thanks again for listening in, and uh, we'll see everybody next week. This podcast has been brought to you by Canadian Assistive Technology, providing low vision and blindness solutions across Canada. Find us online at www.canastech.com. That's C-A-N-A-S-S-T-E-C-H dot com. Or call us toll free at 1-844-795-8324. For all your assistive technology servicing needs, call Chaos Technical Services at 778-847-6840 or find them online at chaostechnicalservices.com. Music provided by bensound.com. Whoa, look at that. Master of the one take.